Today we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, and this is a book that I heard preached from a lot throughout my life in the church. However, the final chapter of Nehemiah, where we're going to be at today, is rarely preached on, and I think I know why. And we'll get to that in a moment. But before we do, I want you to see why the rest of Nehemiah is something that is regularly preached on. Why it's turned to often. Um, People love the book of Nehemiah because it is inspiring. Because the book of Nehemiah is the story of Nehemiah practicing incredible leadership and being so very productive. How many of you would like to be more productive in your life, right? Like all of us recognize, I probably could be more productive. And Nehemiah accomplishes this incredible feat, this incredible task in a very short time. And so you read the book of Nehemiah and you're excited, right? I think the book of Nehemiah would make a great movie because it's the story of this one person taking on this incredibly difficult task and overcoming all types of obstacles. Nehemiah lived in the time of the Israelite uh, captivity and exile. So many of the people of Israel had been removed from their country. Many had died. Many had fallen in battle. And those that weren't, they were carried off into captivity into Babylon. And they were there for about 50 years. And after 50 years, God was working in the hearts of the kings of those countries to allow some of them to return. And it's during this time that Nehemiah is still back in Babylon, but some people have returned. And Nehemiah is excited because even though he's not been a person who grew up in Israel, grew up in Jerusalem, all that he's heard about it, he's confident that back in Jerusalem, they're putting everything back in order. They're rebuilding the city. They're putting everything back like it used to be. They're going to go and take Israel back. It's going to be reclaiming the glory of Jerusalem. But at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, someone comes from Israel on business and Nehemiah is talking with him and asks him how things are going and he hears that the city is still just a wasteland. That it's just all knocked down and it looks horrible and the walls have not been rebuilt. Now for you and me, walls around a city don't really mean much, but for people in that day, for your city to have walls around it meant it was a place that business could be conducted safely. Because people couldn't just come in and take everything. There was a defense that was set up. And without those walls, without that defense around your city, you really couldn't have any long-term confidence in the economy and the prosperity and the flourishing of that city. So when Nehemiah hears that they haven't even rebuilt the walls, he's heartbroken. And he prays and says, God, help me to make a difference here. And I just want to pause before we get to the rest of the sermon. Because you don't get to Nehemiah 13 without Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 happening. Nehemiah hears bad news about the state of his people and of the city. And instead of being critical of what the people who are on the ground are doing, he says, God, show me how I can help. Give me an opportunity to make a difference. And God answers that prayer and actually gives Nehemiah all that he needs. This foreign king, this enemy king, actually gives Nehemiah everything that he needs, resources, and even an armed guard to go back to Jerusalem and do this work. Listen, there are things all around us that are pretty easy to criticize. There are 
issues in our government, in our world, in our church, in our city that are very easy to criticize. It's much more difficult to instead of saying, man, can you believe what's going on over there, to say, God, help me be a part of the solution here. And that's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah prays, God, give me an opportunity to make a difference. Listen, I love our church, but I am not so naive to think that we're perfect. And I'm sure that when you go home and eat your lunch, or you go out to a restaurant and eat lunch, you could very easily pick apart the service, our church, me, right? There's probably a lot of things that you've noticed that maybe aren't exactly as they ought to be. It would be really easy to criticize those, those shortcomings. It's much harder to say, God, help me be a part of the solution to that. God, show me. I believe that God allowed Nehemiah to hear about the walls because God wanted to use Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And maybe it is that you see a need, you see an issue in our world, in our city, in our church. You see a need, and the reason that God has revealed that to you is because he wants you to be a part of his work to rebuild that. So don't use it as an opportunity to complain, but rather see it as a calling. Nehemiah saw it as a call calling. And it's, this book is compelling because he goes back and he starts to rebuild the wall and he has to overcome all of these obstacles. There are enemies, people who don't want the, the walls to be rebuilt. There's these two guys named Sambalat and Tobiah and they're always making fun of Nehemiah and they're making fun of the wall. And there's this really inspiring moment where they say, Nehemiah, we want to talk with you. Why don't you come out to this meeting that we've got set up? And really it's just a plot to ambush him. And Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 6, he sends messengers in verses 3 and 4. He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go to you? But they sent messengers four times and I answered them the same way every time. Nehemiah says, listen, y'all have your little meeting out there. I got work to do. I'm not going to stop. There was another occasion that Sanballat and Tobiah, that they were threatening to knock down the wall and to attack the people as they were rebuilding. And Nehemiah, in this inspiring moment, has the people hold the sword in one hand and a hammer in the other, or a spear in one hand and a shovel in the other. They're building the wall, but they're also ready to defend. And if you read the book of Nehemiah, it will encourage you to jump in on a team and do great things. Nehemiah doesn't stop there, because when the final block is laid on the wall, he immediately goes into work on reestablishing the practices of the temple. He works on the genealogies of the people to make sure that people are right, they're back at the properties that belong to them. Then he has Ezra read the books of the law so that the people understand the truth. He preaches, and it's an incredibly moving worship service because people stand the entire time, and listen to Ezra preach for hours, past lunch, up to dinner. And the people listen, and they're moved, and they cry, and they repent. See, Nehemiah wasn't just concerned with the physical walls around the city. He wanted to see the practices, the spiritual routines and rituals of God's people to be reestablished. It's all beautiful. Then there's chapter 13. And the reason that chapter 13 is often neglected is that chapter 13 tells us what Nehemiah finds when he comes back. 
He builds the wall, he reinstitutes the practices, he gets everything put back together, and then he has to go back to Persia, back to serve at his post in the Persian government. And then when he's given some, some opportunity to return some years later, he comes back to Jerusalem and he finds that everything he worked on has fallen apart. Now the wall is still standing. It's still there. But all of the practices and the culture and the city and the temple that those walls were meant to protect have been corrupted. They've become pagan. You see, what we find in Nehemiah chapter 13 is that Nehemiah can build a wall and he can put people in right places and into the right roles that were laid out in Scripture, but Nehemiah couldn't change the hearts of the people. And once Nehemiah and his strong, visionary leadership left, the people returned to what they really valued. I want you to see this morning that no matter our vision at Faith Church, no matter our culture or our mission, over time what we truly value will reveal itself. What we value, what we treasure, what we hold dear will become evident over time. Look with me at Nehemiah 13 and verse 4. Now before this, this is Nehemiah talking about all this stuff that he's found out. Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with who? Tobiah. Do you remember the two people I told you who were Nehemiah's worst enemies that were trying to undo all of the work that he was doing? The priest, the person who's in charge of the temple, he makes an alliance with who? Tobiah. This very guy that was working against Nehemiah. There is a lot that happens in the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13 that I think is probably a great discouragement to Nehemiah, but I'm sure that nothing was as frustrating to find out that of all people, you made an alliance with that guy? Him? Verse 5 says, And he prepared for him a large room, where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. What happened? The guy who was in charge of the temple. He took a room that was supposed to be where they, they stored all of the the. the needed materials and the food for the Levites, for the priests, the people that were supposed to carry out all of these practices for the temple. It was supposed to be this room where they had everything that they needed for those people. And instead of it being for that, it was Tobias' storage shed. He kept all his stuff there. It may be in that he had a, an estate outside of the city, and when he came into the city, he wanted a place where he could kind of resort, kind of like his condo or his apartment in the city. It may have been that he just had more stuff than he knew what to do with, like many of us, and he had overflowed his, garbage, or his garage and his barn and needed a place to put everything, and there was no store at all or easy store type place, right? But for whatever reason, the priest just said, yeah, Tobiah, you can keep your stuff in the temple. And here this guy who's been an enemy of God's work has now got a foothold in the temple. Verse 6, Nehemiah tells us, But during all this I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, the first, I had returned to the king. 
Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, and preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me bitterly. You ever been grieved bitterly? Can you identify with what he's talking about? You ever learned news that just so disappoints you? Right? This is Nehemiah saying, like, I'm mad, but more than I'm mad, I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm angry, but more than I'm angry, I'm disheartened. What have you done? And therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. He evicts him right there. He just throws all of his stuff out the door. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And when we hear cleanse, you might think, oh, he ordered someone to dust. No, he ordered them to cleanse it, to cleanse it of the evil, to sanctify it to set it apart once again. This was a place that was intended for holy purposes, and Tobiah had made it common like you and I would use our garage or a storage shed. And Nehemiah said, we got to make this holy and sanctified once again. Verse 10, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given to them. For the, each, each of the Levites... And the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. Nehemiah figures out that there's nobody there conducting the practices of the temple because nobody's giving them the food that they need. And because no one's giving them the food that they need, they have to return back to the fields so that they can feed their families. Nobody's made the investment in the people who are going to keep these practices going, so all of the practices have stopped. Verse 11, so I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. And I think he set them in their place in more ways than one. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of grain and the new wine and the oil into the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers of the storehouse, Shemalah, as priests, Zadok the scribe, and the Levites, Padeah. Next to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mathaniah, for they were considered faithful. Found some new people, some faithful people to put in charge of the task. And their task was to distribute to the brethren. And I want you to hear verse 14. Remember me, O God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Nehemiah is disheartened. And he says, God, please don't forget the things that I've done, even though so many of them have come to nothing. Do you remember the story of the ugly duckling? It's a fable, a fairy tale written by Hans Christian Andersen long ago. And I remember hearing it when I was a kid, and the story goes that there's a family of ducklings that all hatch, and one duckling is super ugly, right? He doesn't look like the rest of the ducks. He's weird. He's strange. He's actually expelled from the family. He has to go find somewhere else to live. He spends an entire winter struggling to survive all on his own, unable to find anyone who will welcome him in, anyone who will accept him because he is so different. But when the spring comes, there is a family of geese 
He sees these geese and he, he hopes that maybe they will show him grace and forgiveness and welcome him. They're such beautiful creatures. He's drawn to them. And so he goes to them and he finds that they accept him. And he doesn't understand why. And it's in that moment that he looks down at the water and he sees his reflection and he sees that he's not a duck. He's a, he's a swan. He's a goose. He, he's with the right family now. Over time, his real nature was revealed. And the point of the story being that over time, who you are on the inside will come shining through, right? And we'll tell kids, it doesn't matter if you're ugly, right? The good will come shining through one day. That's the, that's the, the lesson I got when I was a kid. Maybe I was the only kid in class who got that one. I want you to realize this morning that what is real, what is our true nature, over time will be revealed. It'll show itself. What we value, what we treasure, what we hold dear will become evident over time. What happens in Nehemiah 13 is instead of an ugly duckling turning out to be a swan, the people of God turn out to be selfish pagans. They hadn't built a wall to preserve the temple and the laws and the practices of the people of God. They had built a wall just to suit themselves. They appeared to be the people of God, but when Nehemiah left and his strong visionary leadership went with him, the people revealed what they truly valued. And their real natures came out. After the financial collapse of 2008, Michael Lewis wrote a book about how the financial products, all these mortgage derivatives that were really junk, were being sold and given these AAA ratings, and people were being told, man, these are great financial products, when in reality they weren't. And what was happening was this massive fraud that was being perpetrated by all of these people who were part of this house of cards, and once it started to fall apart, it all came crashing down. But in his book, the big short, there's a figure who zigged when everyone else zagged. He actually made a lot of money in the financial crisis because he didn't believe what everyone else was saying. And in the book, he says, we live in an era, era of fraud in America. And not just in banking, but in government, education, religion, food, and even baseball. He says, what bothers me isn't that fraud isn't nice or that fraud is mean. What bothers me is that we know that for the last 15,000 years, fraud and short-sighted thinking have never, ever worked. Not once. Because eventually you get caught and things go south. Eventually reality sets in. Right now in America, we're living in a time of uncovering fraud in religion, like he referred to. It started with the revelation that there were these mass cover-ups of sexual abuse and misconduct in the Catholic Church, but it is now spread to the revelation of cover-ups and financial malfeasance and abuses of power in all types of churches. It's not just a Catholic problem. It's not just a Christian problem. It's a people problem. Corporations, churches, governments, sports teams, wherever it might be, when people revert to their true nature, they see that it was just a lie. 
All of these revelations just show the true nature of church leaders and churches. And listen, as painful as it is, as difficult as it is to read of these things and hear of these things, it's good and it's right that the true nature of these people is revealed. Because what Scripture teaches us is that your sin will find you out. That what you sow, you will one day reap. And you might be able to cover it up and hide it in the ground, but one day it'll spring forth and it'll have reproduced many, many fold. Usually, when I tear up at the gym, it's because it's leg day. Um, however, this past week, I was tearing up at the gym, and it was not leg day. It was because I'd gotten texts from some of our group leaders about conversations they'd had after last week's sermon. People sharing how at Faith Church, they've experienced real, genuine love. People doing acts of service for them behind the scenes. Not to to receive praise, not to be on display, but God working through people behind the scenes. And I teared out because what that reveals, what that shows is what we truly treasure and value, what matters. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount at Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if what we value is the limelight, if what we value is how people perceive us, if what we value is what others think of us, then we'll only do kindness when it's on display, when it's for show. But if what we value is love, then that love will move us to act, whether or not someone's watching, whether or not there's a photographer nearby. Mark Twain said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And what gets us in trouble is when we pretend. Or we fool ourselves or we fool others. When Nehemiah left Jerusalem, he felt confident that everything was put in place. But people had a true value in their hearts that was going to be revealed. Nehemiah 13 isn't where everything falls apart, actually. Nehemiah 13 is actually just where Nehemiah discovers that everything wasn't all together. In reality, it wasn't falling apart because it was never put together. It was only made to look like it was put together. It was only made to look like they really cared. It was made to look like they wanted the temple to be reinstated. It was a trick. It was pretend. It wasn't real. Friend, I want you to hear me. We are not building the image of a church. We're not building the hype of a church. We're not building the branding or the commercial appeal or the reputation. We are building God's church. We must build what is real, what is actual, what is true. I learned a new term this week. The term is dog fooding. Dog fooding is a term that computer programmers use when they use their own software that they've built. It came in the news recently because Facebook has put an incredible amount of money into building this augmented reality universe, the metaverse. 
and it's not doing well. It's not popular, right? Probably a lot of you on Facebook, probably none of you are on the metaverse. And they couldn't really figure out why is this not working? What's, what's the problem? Why are we not fixing all of these bugs? And so they took, a, they took some, some background information. They looked at the, the work of their own employees. And what they figured out is that their own employees never were in the metaverse. They were never using this product that they were all working on. None of them knew how it even worked or what it was supposed to be doing. And how could they improve it or build it if they were never spending time into it? They've poured billions of dollars into it, but it's been largely unsuccessful because none of them use it. And so dogfooding is when a programmer actually uses the program that they've programmed. And the term dogfooding comes from Clement Hirsch. Clement Hirsch started Cal Can Dog Food, which was later became Pedigree, was purchased by Pedigree. And he created this phrase because at his quarterly shareholder meetings, he would give a report of everything that had happened in the company over the last three months. And once all of the questions had been answered and the report was done, he'd walk over to a table where there was a display of dog food. He would crack open a can and he would eat it with a spoon. Because his thing was, we have the best dog food. The quality of the meat in our dog food is better than the quality of meat that most people eat. And he was showing, I believe this so strongly, and I have worked so hard to make sure that we have quality dog food in our quality meat in our dog food. I'm willing to eat it myself. I'm afraid that many times that we think of church as something that other people need. And we're building it because everyone else needs it. We're here because we think our kids need it. We're here because we think our community needs it. We want the church to grow because we think America and America's government needs it. No, we're here because we need it. We're not here to put together a product that we don't consume. We're not here to put together something that we're not participating in. We're not, put together in, not putting together food that we only feed to our dogs. It's for us. We need it. These people throughout the book of Nehemiah, they rebuild walls. That's hard work. It's difficult work. They reinstitute the temple practices. This was not easy. They put in long, hard hours, but it really wasn't for them. It wasn't what they valued. Perhaps they thought that other people needed the temple, but not them. These people wandered from God because their hearts were still as enslaved to sin as ever. We're not building the church that our friends and neighbors will join and our children will lead just for them. And our mission statement is very intentionally outsider focused. It's very intentionally focused on the outsider, on the friend, on the neighbor, on the children. But we're building this church because we need it. We must be participating in it. We must be about it. It must be real to us. It can't just be something that we do so that others will see that it's important. It must be important to us. We must value discipleship. We must value formation. It must be something that we truly value, personally, individually. Later in chapter 13, Nehemiah will say to them, 
Don't you realize this is exactly what our ancestors did that led them into the captivity and bondage in the first place? Don't you see that this pretending and playing church is what caused God to say, you know what, you're not real. You're near me with your lips, but you're far from me in your heart. That's what led them into the captivity in the first place. Culture of the people, their nature, it took over. It overwhelmed the vision and structure that Nehemiah had put into place. Because walls and vision and mission and culture doesn't matter if we don't have a foundation that truly values God. What was it that they were forsaking? Well, the temple was this place where they would come and they would offer a sacrifice of an animal. And when they offered that sacrifice, they would lay their hand upon the animal to signify that their sin was being placed upon the account of that animal. And that animal was going to die for their sins. And all of it was pointing to the day that Jesus would do this for all of us. The temple was to have this ongoing regular practice so they could regularly be reminded, I am a sinner in need of God's grace. I am a sinner in need of God's goodness. But the people didn't go. They didn't go and worship. They didn't go and participate in the sacrifices. They didn't go and sing the psalms about how good God was. It was nice that there was a temple. And it was nice that the walls were rebuilt. But they had other things to do on Sabbath day. I recently read an article and it was in a in a secular magazine, it was about what a shame it is that all of these churches in downtowns are closing. And they had interviewed people who live in these neighborhoods, and they're just so upset that these churches are closing and that they're being sold to developers. And they don't think it's right. They think that the government should do something to keep the churches open because the churches are so nice and the architecture is wonderful. And these are people who live in these neighborhoods and they don't want the church to become a Dollar General or a parking lot or another Starbucks, but they're not going to go. They're not going to attend. They're not going to worship. They've got Sunday brunch. We need structure. We need vision and mission. We need right culture. But all of it is meaningless if we don't value Jesus. If we don't value Jesus in our hearts. You know, it's interesting. If you read the Gospels, Jesus spends three and a half years with the disciples and doesn't really give them a whole lot of structure or plans. And when Jesus ascends into heaven and Pentecost happens, they... They do exactly what the Spirit leads them to do, but they don't have anything written out like, okay, step one, step two, step three. Jesus didn't do any of that. What Jesus focused his three and a half years on was transforming their hearts into hearts that loved God. Listen, I know that you're at church on Sunday morning, but do you love 
I know that you're supposed to say yes. And I know that if you call yourself a Christian, God's supposed to be important to you. But do you love him? Do you value him? Is he king of your heart? When you rise in the morning, is Jesus what you want? Are you here this morning because Jesus is what you need? Are you here this morning because you realize that you are a sinner desperately in need of God's grace? Are you here this morning to worship the King of Kings who has taken the penalty and the punishment for your sins? Are you here today because God has saved you? Do you love Him? We all need Him. But do you love Him? Do you appreciate Him? Do you value him? We must first and foremost be people who love Jesus. Because if we just build a church, we'll build walls and organizations and groups and programs and ministries that will be empty and devoid of meaning and eventually empty and devoid of people. come to be filled with junk that we really value. That time on the calendar, those rooms in our hearts, they will be filled with what we really value. Do you love Jesus? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.